0: It is so good to see you. And I hope that this feels like home. And I also hope that we didn't get chairs that are too comfortable, okay? So (laughs) we did try to put a lot of emphasis on what you're seated on today to make that as comfortable and to make it as long-lasting as possible. And there are a lot of people to thank. I'll mention some specifically at the end. But as should always be the case in this space, prayer and the word of God should be preeminent. So, open your Bibles, let's go back to Hebrews. I love this chapter. It's extremely rare for me to attempt to tackle an entire chapter. Normally, you guys know I'll take a verse or two, but in Hebrews, I've tried to get us in the journey just a little bit faster. But rather than try to pull a verse in one day from this particular chapter, I want to go back in this series to a verse that we've been learning because I think it's so important. Our theme is Hebrews an Anchor for the Soul. It's so nice to be able to have both things going again. And so I want us to go back to Hebrews 2.1 and I want us to say it one more time, without blanks, then with some blanks, because I really wanna make sure we have nailed this verse down, okay? Join me in Hebrews 2.1, let's go. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. Yeah, you sound good in here. Okay, let's do it again. Let's put some blanks in it. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Yeah, our tendency is to drift. What have we discovered the last few weeks as we've been in a mini-series called Who's at the Helm? I said, well, here's what we're to do. We're to tenaciously hold the truth. Our eternal destination depends on it. We are to totally trust Christ because he's in complete control. But now give me a little bit more. Why do we do that? Well, because Christ is the cause and the captain of our salvation and sanctification. And Christ identifies with us in our humanity and our suffering and in our temptation. So there was a group in the early 80s. The best decade for music. No, I'm kidding. I like all music. I like the 60s in particular. But in 1981, there was a hit for a group named Journey. And their lead singer, Steve Perry, in my humble but accurate opinion, one of the greatest vocalists of all time, particularly of the 80s. Yeah, okay. You, you can disagree. It's fine. You would be wrong. But do you remember... When Steve Perry sang, it's one of the weirdest songs because you don't get the chorus till the very end. you remember? Just a small town girl. I can't even come close to him. Living in a lonely world. Took a midnight train going anywhere. Good. All right. You remember the chorus at the end? Dun, 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 dun. Don't stop believing. What's the next line? Hold on to that feeling. Yeah, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> don't hold on to that feeling. Don't do that. I love the title, and so that's what we're using. Don't stop believing, but I want you to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a feeling. Your feelings will change. That's sort of like asking, well, what do you think? Do you like this? And do you like that? Well, we could have different opinions. You know, I was going to go for Carolina blue in this place, but they said no. So here's the deal. We can have different opinions, just like our homes would look different. But if the Lord is smiling and says, well, those are my people. That's my, that's my church. Those are my people. If the Lord is happy, I'm not holding on to my feeling. I'm holding on to Him. And so I want us to think every time you hear that song, I hope I've kind of ruined it just a little bit for you. Don't stop believing. I don't want to hold on to the feeling. I want to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's hear how that is taught to us through Hebrews chapter 3. Stand with me, please. It says, Therefore, what what does that mean? It connects us to chapter 2. Because Jesus has suffered. Because Jesus has been tempted, because Jesus is a high and faithful priest, therefore, holy brethren, so Christians, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. See, that's who we're holding on to, who was faithful to him who appointed him. That would be to his father, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in his house, in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, did you see that? We are the house of the Lord, whose house we are if we hold fast with confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Don't stop believing. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now we get some Old Testament, today if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore. I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they've not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Don't stop believing, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if... We hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But... To those who did not obey, so, or therefore, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what an incredible passage of Scripture. We could easily spend a month or more right here. But in the time we have, let us see the big picture. The writer is encouraging the people of his day and the people of ours, hold fast. Stand firm. As Moses was faithful, Christ is much more so. Now we must be faithful. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful day in this beautiful place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, guys, so what are we trying to see here? Verses one to six. To me, it's really telling us one thing. Always remember the superiority of Jesus. Always remember the superiority of Jesus. I'll not reread the entire passage there, but if you were to skim that, you see what the writer's trying to teach us. The author of Hebrews penned this section to warn professing believers, keep your priorities straight. You've made a commitment to Christ. Do not return to the empty rituals of Judaism. You think highly of Moses. You think Moses was one of your great founding figures, and he was. But Jesus is that much more superior. Now the superiority of Christ doesn't negate the value and legitimacy of Moses and the law. But Christ, according to the scripture, is the apostle, the sent one. Apostolo means the sent one. He is the high priest of God. That is an office you know that Moses never occupied. Aaron was high priest, not Moses. But Jesus is both the leader, the apostle, and the high priest. So I said it like this. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is a perfect son. Now what happened after God's people were free from Pharaoh's hand in Egypt? You remember Exodus 12 and what would follow. Remember after that first Passover, when the death angel passed over, when God said, I will not kill the firstborn if you've made the sacrifice of the lamb and applied its blood to your lintel and your doorpost. What happens there? Well, Moses faithfully took the Lord's instructions and made a temporary house for God, although he doesn't live in temples made with hands, but there was this meeting house called the tabernacle, a giant tent, a precursor to the temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. And you'll remember that Jesus has built a better house, Moses built a house, but Jesus has built a better house. You say, what do you mean Jesus has built a better house? This? This is Jesus' house? No. This. This is Jesus' house. And your heart, should you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, you are the house of the Lord. Yes, we come to the house of the Lord, but we are the house of Lord the Lord. You see, there's this comparison and contrast between Jesus and Moses all over this chapter. Jesus has fulfilled an even higher calling. I mean, think about it. The man who stood before God on Mount Sinai and he got the Ten Commandments. He was greater than Charles Charleston Heston, by the way. Is that his name? Whoever that guy was. Charles Heston? Carlton. Charlton. Charlton Heston. Yeah, so that's before my time, all y'all. Charlton. Uh, So Jesus is greater than Moses who received the law of God. Now think about why. Look, Moses ministered using symbols and shadows of things to come. The tabernacle was a picture of what was going to happen in heaven. Y'all know that? The tabernacle was a picture of the heavenly reality, a foreshadowing. But Christ is the perfect fulfillment of all those things that mercy seat like the throne of God but in heaven there is the actual throne of God the actual meeting place with God and Jews and Christians alike recognize the greatness of Moses as a servant leader so how much more should we honor and recognize Christ Moses was a person through whom God spoke but Christ was a founder of the household of faith look again at verse 6 Christ as a son over his own house whose house we are. There's a big word there. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. I heard Dr. Stewart speak at our 25th anniversary celebration for GCA the other night. And I bet if you were here during his time, he probably said this to you. It's the first time I'd heard him say it. He said the biggest word in the English language was if. And I think there's some truth in that when you really consider the Bible has all these conditional statements, if Christ is over us, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. You know, many of us probably remember the successful MasterCard ad campaign that started running during the 1997 World Series. I love the World Series. I still think it's a misnomer since we don't play other countries. But in the World Series, I thought it was one of the best ad campaigns. It ran for years afterward. We see a father and a son in that first ad. They're going to the big baseball game. And we hear the narrator's voice, two tickets, $28.00. Tells you it's a long time ago. Uh, Two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with your 11-year-old son. Man, y'all watch too much TV. Okay, so, no, that's right, that's right. Priceless. And what is the tag, you remember? There are some things money can't buy. But for everything else, There's MasterCard. Yeah, which is not exactly true because MasterCard's not taken everywhere, okay? But the reality is it was a brilliant campaign because it tugged at the heartstrings. What it was saying was other than the priceless things, MasterCard was the greatest, and I would say to you that there are a lot of things money can't buy, the most important things in life money can't buy, and Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, more than Moses, more than the tabernacle, more than the old Judaic system, Jesus alone is priceless, and so we must trust him. Always remember the superiority of Jesus. Second truth I want you to see in the middle of the chapter, starting your journey with Jesus is critical. But holding on keeps you confident and strong. Holding on. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, here's what we're going to get. We're going to get a replay of what happened in the wilderness. You can't return to Moses and ignore Jesus you got to hold fast to the confidence and hope where you started. You prove the genuineness of your profession of faith by your endurance in Christian commitment. And so what we have here, starting in uh, 7 and 8, is a quote from Psalm 95. It refers to the unfortunate discontent and the expressions of discontent that arose in Exodus chapter 17. Somebody got me right out of the gate this morning and said, uh, I need to tell you, I'm not happy with something. And I thought, oh, good grief. Are you kidding me? Here it goes. And thankfully, all they said was something like their seat didn't recline and have a cup holder and heater in it or something like that. Um, So thank the Lord they weren't being serious. I fully expected to get hammered at some point, though. But here's the thing. When you think about the people of God and how God had delivered them through the leadership of Moses, it's an incredible thing that they would almost immediately begin to grumble and gripe and moan and wail. And so what we find is when we unpack a lot of this stuff and we really begin to see this story, the story itself unfolds in Exodus 17. And there's this concept of rebellion, it's the word merabah in Hebrew, and, and that's again quoted in Psalm 95 as I mentioned. And then there's another term called masa here, which is testing or trial. So we have rebellion and trial, rebellion and testing. During a stop in the wilderness wanderings at a place called Rephidim, Moses confronted a nation of Israelites complaining because they had no water. He accused the Jews of grumbling and putting the Lord to the test. Why are you testing God? Why are you rebelling against God? He has already delivered you. And so in desperation, Moses pleads with God, what shall I do with these people? And so God said, strike the rock and you'll produce water. I'll not get back into the nuance of the story, but that's what Moses did. And water came forth. But because of the bitterness of the experience of that location, Moses called it Massa and Meribah. So testing or trial and rebellion or quarreling. It's a reminder for the people. Hey, God brought you this far. God's not going to let you go. Quit grumbling. Quit putting God to the test. God's going to give you what you need to eat. God's going to give you all you need to drink. And I think Christians today are at times... In danger of rebelling against the Lord in our own hardening. Those who listen to the warning that Moses gives can remember God's got this. Hold on, have courage, be committed, be strong. The readers are claiming to be Christians, but what about their heart? Moses was basically saying, listen, if you're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, I mean, if you read back through that middle section, he's basically saying, look, if you're hardened, then what you're going to show is there's a heart of unbelief. It doesn't say this. Now listen carefully. It does not say, if we do not hold on to our confidence, then although we were once saved, nevertheless, you've now lost your salvation. That's not what it says. In fact, the Bible never teaches that heresy. In fact, it's the opposite of what the Bible says. I want you to listen to what George Guthrie said. He had a commentary on Hebrews, and he said this, Perseverance does not gain salvation, but demonstrates the reality that true salvation indeed has been inaugurated. It's a great statement. Wayne Grudem made a similar statement in systematic theology, his very famous work, but I've tweaked it a little bit, so I didn't put his name in your notes, but tweaking what he said, I I wrote it like this, failure to hold on to faith does not cause a person to lose salvation. It indicates that they were most likely not saved in the first place. Now, I know, I know, I know, but they walked down the aisle. They took the preacher by the hand. They signed a card. They went into the baptistry. Not a one of those things makes you a Christian. You know that, right? Not a one of those things will save you. Only grace through faith in Christ, in Christ alone will save you. These five precious folks were not saved by the ordinance of baptism this morning. The water did nothing for them, but the blood of Jesus cleansed them from all sin, and they showed you now that they're dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is why we baptize. It is showing the world what God has already accomplished. And so we show on the outside what God has done on the inside. But we gotta hold on. We gotta listen to our Father. We gotta pay attention to the commands. I'm gonna show you a picture. This is little Bobby on his third birthday getting his favorite toy when he was a child. That's Bobby and Hannah in our old living room. We got a couple of shots. Y'all recognize that? That's a John Deere gator. My son thought he was so big because his papaw, my father, for many years had a John Deere gator that looked just like that. And Bo, or Bobo we called him back then, used to sit beside of my dad on that gator and they'd go up and down the road and they'd pick up trash and they'd work in the yard and, and those were good days. And so, for his third birthday, we got Bobby his own gator. Now, of course, it had a battery under the hood, but um, we, we got in that gator, and he loved riding Hannah around. They were, they're pretty close in age. And so, uh, like most neighborhoods, people often went too fast down our street. And one day, Bobby has Hannah uh, in the passenger seat, and he begins heading straight down the driveway toward the street where... You can imagine, we had told him many, many times, don't go near the street. But three-year-olds are like 30-year-olds or like 70-year-olds. Sometimes we don't listen to the father. And he kept going. And so I began running and yelling, and I finally got really loud, Bobby, stop! And thankfully, that chubby little foot came off the gas, and that thing had a little auto brake on it. And he stopped. And then by the time I got to him, of course, he's crying, big baby. And so he went, <laughs> no, but he's crying, but he stopped. And he was safe and his sister was safe. Now I'm sure he's thinking, I've seen Papa ride the road and get trash. I'm, I'm a big boy. I'm sure he's just thinking, hey, I got Hannah in Toe. we're going cruising, man. I'm sure he's not thinking cars come down my road too fast, and that little old gator's only about that high. I'm sure he's not processing the deadly consequences of his actions. But I'm grateful to tell you, at least in that moment, he listened to the Father's voice. I had to yell to get his attention. And I think sometimes the Lord uses different circumstances in our life to put an exclamation point and say it in all caps. You know, it's important for us to put Jesus first. It's more important than having fun, getting a promotion, making a million dollars, completing a personal goal. Nothing can compare with the joy of having him say to us one day, well done, good and faithful servant. But obeying the Father is not a one and done in this life. Obeying the voice of God is not, oh, I heard you once. I did what you said, Lord. It is a daily commitment to follow him. So I want to encourage you, don't stop believing. Don't hold on to that feeling, hold on to Jesus because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember his superiority. Starting with him is critical, but holding on keeps you confident and strong Because of this, number three, when we doubt the word of God, we miss the blessings from God. I can promise you this. If my son had not stopped and he had made it all the way to the road, regardless of whether cars were coming or not, that gator would have been put up for a good long while. That battery would have been disconnected, and the father would no longer allow him to play. And see, in our life, when God is speaking, when God is saying, trust me, walk with me, stay with me. If we doubt his word, we miss his blessings. So there's this second warning that comes in the latter part of this chapter. And what the writer is saying is rejecting Jesus is far worse than rejecting Moses. Hebrews seeks to prevent us from following the example of that faithless generation. You know what it says. The people would not obey me. The people would not stand on my promises. I said, go up into that land. That's a good land. That's a land flowing with milk and honey. And the people said, "Uh, not today. The people over there are too big, Lord. We can't go today. And then when God said, oh, really? You can't go today? Okay, then go out here and wander. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We'll go today. And then they go and try to do it in their own power. And many die. But the Lord said, you have tested me. You have rebelled against me. Therefore, this generation, this first generation, you will die in the wilderness. Because to the Lord, sin is deadly serious. To us, it's just a cutesy thing we can play with, but not to God. So we must get our priorities straight. No matter how pressing life's demands, we must obey the commands of the Lord. If we don't, we stumble into ruin Just like the wilderness generation, think about it. It started with Adam and Eve. God said, "I give you all of this. Just obey me." They said, "Mm, "No thanks," and they were cast out. It had it it continued in men like Solomon. God said, "I'm going to give you more wisdom and more wealth than any man that's ever walked this planet. I'm going to give it to you, Solomon. Stay faithful." And Solomon said, "That's great. I'm staying faithful. Staying." Ooh, she's looking good. I'm staying, fi- Ooh, look at her. I'm staying, oh my. And all of a sudden, he doesn't have one or two, three, five, or 10. He has over 700 wives and kind. It makes me exhausted just to think about Solomon's life. But he turned his eyes off the Lord and he didn't just have a Bathsheba moment. He had many Bathsheba moments. And God took his hand of blessing off of him. You know, it's also good advice I've gotten from my own father through the years. He would say, Keep good friends. Always work hard. Don't have too much free time on your hands, and you'll likely stay out of trouble. Keep good friends. Put good, godly people around you. Work hard, man. And don't have too much free time. Boredom is the devil's playground. And you know, it says in 17 that their corpses fell in the wilderness. The people of God experienced the judgment of God because they wouldn't keep believing. They did not enter God's rest. We're gonna talk about God's rest next week. They didn't see God's promised land. Only their children got that blessing. And the Jewish Christians to whom this letter is written are dangerously close, some of them, of falling back as their forefathers did. So let me sort of give you one last statement there for your notes. Simply starting the Christian life is not sufficient to assure its completion. We must continue in our commitment to Christ. You remember the four soils, right? You remember the parable where it said this one looked like it was going to be okay and that one looked okay. But eventually, whether the bird snatched it away or whether it withered and died because it had no good root, or whether the thorns and the thistles came and choked it. Eventually, three of the four were no more. Three of the four did not hold. But to the one that held, it was planted in good soil, and it produced some 30, 60, or 100-fold. Why did Jesus tell us that? Why is it repeated in all of the gospel letters? Why? because God knows our tendency to drift away but if you drift away and stay away let me say this again if you drift away and stay away you were never anchored in Christ to begin with now I know some people don't like that and some people are counting on that walk down the aisle and that signing of the card and that baptism but those things don't save all genuine children of God will continue in the journey of faith I told all four of my children as I was there with all four when they accepted Christ Cindy and I both we said time will be the truest indicator as to whether or not your decision is genuine it will take time and we will see through your life if you hold firm to the faith passed from your parents if you hold firm to the end then you are part of the family. That's not to say we may not backslide for a season. That's not to say we won't sin. We talked about it last week. We struggle and we still do things we don't wanna do. But to do anything less than hold on to Jesus would mean we never really experience salvation. Uh, Let me give you just a couple of applications of this. Encourage one another to keep going. When you know someone that's fallen away from the family of faith, then they may be dangerously close from falling away from faith itself. Encourage one another. We're getting ready to launch something to encourage you through our deacon ministry. I won't take the time today to expound upon it all, but it's gonna be a big encouragement to you. And it's designed to minister even more effectively to our church family, and it is designed to encourage you to keep going. Don't fall away and live in unbelief, or you'll miss God's best And you'll never enter God's rest. Let's review. Always remember the superiority of Jesus. Starting the journey with him is critical, but holding on keeps you confident and strong. And when we doubt the word of God, we miss the blessings from God. We had a great pastor's meeting Tuesday morning. We always do. We alternate between pastor's meetings and all-staff meetings, and um, and then our pastors meet every morning, praying for you at 9 a.m., praying for our school, praying over this campus, praying for the work that God is doing here. But this Tuesday morning, we had a particularly fruitful meeting. We had discussed things the Lord had been showing us. One of our pastors, Mike, actually mentioned a show he had watched about cruising or something, I think it was, uh, like boat style, not in a car, but he was talking talking about um, ships that were in water too deep to anchor, and they used their rudders, and there were systems that could hold them in place, and that got me thinking about something. Several years ago, um, I got a little fishing boat, a little boat down in Florida, and then I brought it up here, and uh, if you're interested in a boat, by the way, I'm getting ready to sell it because I needed a bigger boat. When your wife tells you the family's growing, honey, you want to consider buying a bigger boat, guess what I did this weekend? I bought a bigger boat, praise God. <laughs> He told me in about four hours later, I bought, no, not quite that fast, but I bought a bigger boat. I've got a really good boat to sell, so um, I need somebody to buy that boat so I can go back and sleep in my bedroom. Okay, so here's the deal. When I got that boat, I had been reading about some technology. It's not been around all that long, but it's built into the trolling motor. You know, if you're going to have a fishing boat, you've got to be able to troll. And in that trolling motor, there's a little puck that works with the head of that trolling motor, and it's GPS technology. And so what our family does is we'll go out and it doesn't matter how deep the water is, I never throw an anchor in. You know why? Because I've got a setup on that, you fishermen will know this, called Spot Lock. I've Got a little remote control and it's got an anchor button. And when I hit that anchor button, it's the coolest thing you've ever seen. That little trolling motor locks into the satellite somewhere up there and it holds me within a three foot circle of where I hit that lock button. Now, it'll spin a little bit depending upon the current, but we'll jump off, we'll swim. Cindy and I have had picnics. We've fallen asleep on the boat before, laid out, fell asleep, and woke up, and thankfully, it's worked. It's held us right where we're supposed to be. But when Mike mentioned something about that show he'd watched, it got me thinking. There's a way I know my trolling motor is working to anchor us, this spot lock anchor. It's constantly moving. Even when the current on top looks calm, things are happening under the water. And the slightest bit of wind makes that head or that trolling motor auto adjust. And if we're out swimming and I'm worried, is the boat moving? Are we getting further away or is the boat getting further away? I just look up and I look at the head of that trolling motor. And if it's moving, if it's adjusting, it's working. And I got to thinking about something. In the Christian life, you cannot get stagnant and stop moving. If you think, well, I'm okay, I'm right where I need to be, not unless you're dead, you're not. And if you think, I'll just stay right here, well, you know what the current's going to do? It's going to move you away without you doing anything at all. You're going to automatically start drifting from the Lord. You've got to constantly... You know what I'll do in the morning when I get up? Same thing I do every morning. I'll open the Word of God. I'll read the Word of God. Not for a sermon, not for a Sunday school lesson. I'll read the Word of God. I'll pray. I'll have to say I'm sorry to the Lord. I'm sure on several things. I'll have to confess. I'll have to keep moving. I'll have to make sure that I'm aligned and I'm locked in because the minute I stop, is the minute I drift. What am I saying to y'all? Don't stop moving toward the Lord. God will never give up on you, so don't you quit and don't you give up on him. Can I make it even easier? Don't stop believing. Stand with me this morning. I hope you hear that on the radio today. Stop. I was gonna sing it, you know, believe and hold on to Jesus. But it doesn't sound quite right. But I really want you to think, Lord, how can I stay connected today? How can I adjust? What does your word demand of me? What are you asking of me so that I can stay locked with you? Thank you so much for watching us today.